0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Mary-Louise McLaws. Mary-Louise is an epidemiologist at the University of New South Wales, and she's also a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. Mary-Louise joined me to discuss what we have learned globally about the coronavirus and what we must do in Australia to keep COVID-19 transmission at zero to very low. She also discusses the risk of viral transmission through aerosol particles, as well as how best to ventilate spaces, what contact tracing best practice is, as well as the concerning development of people chronically ill with so-called long COVID. This conversation took place on the 8th of December, 2020. And uh, I do want to welcome onto the program, Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW. And she's also, um, she's a professor of epidemiology at UNSW and she's also a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection, Prevention and Control, Preparedness and Response to COVID-19 and um, I was really, really um, delighted to speak with Mary Louise this July. That was all during a very um, stressful period for a number of, well, all Victorians really, who had been going through quite a lot and we did see the introductions of masks and so we were talking all about masks and how in this second lockdown I think it was that we should be looking at an elimination strategy and why an elimination strategy is actually a good idea. It's funny that we have now suddenly reached a point in an epidemiological sense where, in Victoria, we have officially eliminated the coronavirus, COVID-19 disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. So it is an interesting point that I now welcome Mary Louise McLaws, who is a professor, as I said, in epidemiology, and thank you so much, Mary Louise, for coming back onto the program. Oh, it's a pleasure and congratulations. To every single Victorian for an amazing effort and a wonderful
1: result. So you deserve lots of accolades.
0: <laughs> it does feel really good. I've got to say, it does. It also feels a little surreal. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone else feels like that, but um, I feel like I had been looking at. Uh, you know, people interstate on their Instagrams and seeing them go to restaurants and thought it was like a completely other country. But yes, now we are sitting in cafes and going to beaches and uh, even walking outside without masks on. So things have changed quite drastically from when we last spoke, Mary Louise. But I, I did want to start this conversation on the subject that we had ended with last time, which was this discussion of elimination versus suppression, mainly because at a nationwide uh, level, we apparently have endorsed a suppression strategy, not an elimination strategy. However, it kind of looks like because uh, so many states closed their borders to each other, because Victoria locked down uh, for a long enough period with strong enough measures, that we have really for most purposes, eliminated COVID-19 in Australia um, with the odd case uh, here and there from international travellers. But it seems like on a community transmission level, Australia has somehow ended up with elimination. What are your thoughts on how this has kind of occurred and the fact that so many politicians had been reticent to take up an elimination strategy in a formal sense and yet this is kind of where we stand?
1: Look, it's a... It was an unforeseen great outcome that you had. I mean, the outcome that most uh, outbreak managers, I imagine, were hoping for was zero cases over twice an average incubation period that would put you in a very safe place for contact tracing to get right on top of any small cluster that might happen thereafter. But your authorities uh, decided that they could call upon your suffering a little bit longer to push it to 28 days. Now, let me explain the difference between 28 and 14 days. Uh, For outbreak management, we use twice an average incubation period to say that a cluster outbreak has finished, like in a large suburb or a large block of home units where there's been an outbreak, and after 14 days, For this disease, which is twice an average incubation period, you could say the cluster's over, or in a hospital, the cluster's over. But if you're looking at, say, a village or, say, a large city, then you look at twice the the, um, maximum incubation period. And for this disease, it's 14 days is the maximum. So twice that is 28 days. So then your authorities decided, well, you're looking so good at this, Uh, given that you'd had the occasional uh, person inadvertently either acquiring it and then spreading it in in Shepparton and, um, uh, you know, the cleaner in the butcher's club, they decided to go that little bit further and ensure that they um, didn't have to deal with any dispersed clusters around the state. So you effectively got elimination But the reason that the country didn't go for elimination originally is because I think that they were toying between looking after the economy and trying to look after the Australian um, people's health. And that's a very difficult balancing act. Which one do you do? Because you can't have both. You can have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. And given that we had uh, got to very low levels in the most populated state, New South Wales. They then decided, well, the contact tracing was such that they could put out any cluster when it occurred, and New South Wales was doing very well. But Victoria had an underlying, persistent, really annoying community level that they couldn't put out. And then it reignited with the hotel quarantine. And then you had a bushfire from all sides. You had the residential aged care facility, you had in the hospital, you had the community, you had high risk groups, abattoirs. I mean, it just went on and on. And it was seeded from the quarantine hotel. And it just is beholden to us to remember it just takes one person to inadvertently cause a wave. So that is why your authorities decided you've gone for the end of a cluster, let's go for broke and go for the end of an outbreak. But it doesn't mean that this will last forever, because we've seen People coming in with exemptions on aeroplanes. You know, we had a positive American flight attendant. Now, fortunately, that flight attendant was found very early. We've had crews coming in from freight ships uh, in Western Australia. So we'll always have a threat to a small, very low level if we nationally Come together and say, let's never have a shutdown like we had before. Let's help each other pounce on any small cluster uh, so we never have to deal with this again.
0: Yes, and a case in point would be South Australia, semi recently, having that outbreak in their state and trying to get to the bottom of it. But they similarly pounced on things very quickly when it looked like it would potentially get out of hand and there were multiple chains of transmission and in some cases it looked like it had, it had transmitted very easily. What are your thoughts on the way that places like South Australia more recently did go that extra mile and do things that some people, some politicians for example, might think is over the top? I certainly don't think it was over the top but you know, as we've said and discussed before you want things to look like it's over the top because that means you're doing it properly
1: Mm, exactly and sadly politics always comes into pandemic management or outbreak management um it, it seems like the politicians can't help themselves and they often don't rise to their very generously put there by their voters and um you know, anyone in opposition needs to understand that they have a really important role to play to support a logical outbreak management. And most of Australia and the authorities have never dealt with an outbreak on this size. And and most countries haven't outside of Asia and Africa with MERS, Ebola, Zika, bird flu, and SARS. And so they're learning as they're going and they're doing very well. Um, Often what happens with outbreak managers and and epidemiologists who deal with, with these things all the time, they understand that the virus doesn't change all that much in that it has to change its infectivity. It has to be able to become more infectious. Now this one already is and where we've learned from the beginning you know, a couple of months into it, that the reason that it was so hard to control compared to SARS Cove One in two thousand and three is that you become infectious very early on on before you get symptoms. Now you may not spread it as well when without the symptoms, but you still are infectious, and that makes it very difficult to control. But that hasn't changed, just our learning, our understanding has changed. Then the next one is does it kill and become you know more deadly? And it hasn't. it It is um, killing our elderly, our immune suppressed or those with a, a second, very um, severe comorbidity. So the third thing that does change is behavior. And so in South Australia, I understand that they were concerned that they, because they believe people when they interview them, that what they're being told is the truth. But for something to become much more infectious and have a much more rapid period of infectivity, it would have to have changed dramatically. And we haven't seen that. It's changed a little bit, but not dramatically. And what does change is behaviour. And that also includes, sadly, not people being interviewed by uh, con- uh, contact tracers don't feel comfortable with them and get anxious that they may get into trouble. So it's beholden to us, um, to the authorities, when they're interviewing people to remind them that whatever they tell them isn't going to go to the police, it isn't going to go to the Australian tax office or immigration, that it is held within the Department of Health and that's it. So that they feel free to then say, actually, I'm doing a second job and it's cash in hand. I mean, that's what you saw with the occasional problem in Victoria and that happens all the time. And this outbreak is no different than other outbreaks that has been dealt with, where people don't tell the truth. And the authorities run around like crazy and are kept off the real scent for a week. And the same thing happened during SARS, when a um, case had a receipt in his pocket saying that he'd been to a restaurant. And so he chose that line of deceit with the contact tracers and said he, he thought he caught it, must have caught it in a restaurant. But in fact, he didn't want to tell the authorities that he'd visited a sex worker. Now, had he told the authorities that, the authorities wouldn't have wasted many days trying to work out. Could this disease be spread like Legionnaire's disease with air conditioning in a shopping mall? And so outbreak managers get very short-tempered when this sort of thing happens because it places people at unacceptable risks. So people being interviewed need to be reminded once, maybe twice, and then If they continue to lie, there needs to be repercussions because it places the public at risk because the poor old contact tracers and public health officers can't do their jobs properly. So the authorities in South Australia ran around taking people's word on what was happening because they'd never been lied to before by somebody who feared what would happen. And uh, so it's beholden to contact tracers to build up trust and to say to them, please tell me the truth. If you tell me the truth within this cone of uh, anonymity, you won't get into trouble. But if I ask you again and you lie, then there will be consequences because you can't have the authorities um, shutting down communities because
0: somebody hasn't told the truth. Absolutely. It's so true. And um, one of the interesting parts about this, of course, we have seen in Victoria that even people here, when we saw the country outbreaks, we had people who weren't honest with our contact traces. I do want to ask about some of the other things that contact tracers and the public health team have put in place in Victoria, for example, but I know it's been used elsewhere, is that when we see these outbreaks, given that we have such low community transmission or no community transmission in our case, that One thing that is new is that not only do the close contacts of a known positive case go into isolation, um, but then also those people's contacts as well seem to go into isolation for some period. I wanted to understand that, Advancement really that we've made in not just going to the first layer, but then also moving to the next layer of contacts, and you know whether you think that's an effective strategy and something that um, is a useful thing that we have learned from you know the multiple waves we've already been through.
1: Look, it's not new. Uh, it's only new because the state territory authorities have time to do this. We have known since about April that people become infectious to others on day three, four and five after being exposed. Now, 50% of all cases become infectious to others on day four, a smaller proportion on day three, and an even smaller, rarer proportion on day zero and day one, you know, less than 1%. So the proportion and probability of spread and builds up by day three, and the use of um, contacts of contacts is basically saying now they have time; they can go back to the contacts. But what they should also be doing is going back further, because previously, when they, when everybody was run off their feet in New South Wales and Victoria, they went back 48 hours from the first symptom. That's not far enough and never has been far enough. And we've been, we've seen that cluster outbreaks in New South Wales. There was one with a, a teaching hospital. It went for 30 days. And that is several incubation periods. And why did it go that long? Because they didn't go back far enough and they didn't go to contacts of contacts. And then secondly, it just didn't stop at 33 days. It then went, another 30 days and two other cases were found one person was found was, was tested positive and found to have a contact of somebody from that original cluster so what it suggests to me is is that people slip through their fingers because they did that minimum amount of think back 48 hours from when you first had your symptoms but in fact you should be thinking forward, trying to work out who your source case is, and then thinking, all right, three days from when the source case was found, and that's why they're interviewing you now, because you're part of their uh, reporting of who they met, think back from day three after you had lunch or dinner with this person how many people and who they were from day three, four, five. And then about day six and seven, you're starting to get symptoms anyway. But it covers the base of when you are potentially infectious from day three. So that contact of contact is kind of covering that base because they now have the staff and the ability to cover that. So it's it's good practice. But they couldn't possibly have done that when you were in the middle of the the second wave because um, you had huge numbers and they could probably only just deal with what they had. And this goes to the question of why we aren't having a national contact tracing system where when you need help, you can call in people from New South Wales or South Australia. It certainly has to be... The cluster has to be dealt with locally because it's only the local public health officers who fully understand when, for example, I work in Randwick and a contact tracer would say, so, uh, do you work on campus? Do you go up the road to the hospital? Um, And they fully understand what Randwick looks like and what they may have to deal with. So local management, but assistance where needed, with
0: uh, the contacts of the contacts. Yeah, that's uh, really, really interesting that you've um, explained that. Thank you so much for that. Does that mean that in our interviews now, when we're capturing contacts of contacts, are we going back prior to 48 hours before symptoms now when we're asking people to recount what they had been doing?
1: It should. They should go back. Uh, WHO even says forty-eight hours, and that hasn't caught up with the with the recent knowledge that, in fact, on that that covers day four, but doesn't cover day three, uh, you know, post exposure. And I think that we're now at a level of um, safety that you can go back 72 hours just to make sure and then do contacts of the contacts back to 72 hours.
0: That seems like a very sensible thing. Hopefully that is what's happening or does happen. One of the other areas that I have been very interested in, in terms of the science and the fact that perhaps some governments and bodies haven't quite caught up with it and we see these discussions particularly on Twitter amongst a lot of scientists but looking at things like aerosols and how the coronavirus can be spread not just through droplets in the air that that are kind of larger particles that drop but these very small particles that are aerosolized That, since the beginning of the pandemic, has been something people, scientists in particular, have discussed as a possible mode of transmission. However, you know, it has taken some time for science to, like, look at aerosols um, in more detail. And then we've seen, for example, Australia's infection control panel, think about aerosols but they haven't really or they hadn't up until recently really acknowledged the role of aerosol transmission in any widespread sense. So Mm. I did want to understand from your perspective and also being across all the science in your roles at the moment where we are actually at in terms of our understanding of aerosol transmission and whether that's something that we should be thinking about and also considering ventilation of indoor spaces if that is something to be concerned by
1: Absolutely. So the advisory panels to most chief medical officers include experts, really high-level experts, we have some of the best in the world, uh, for hospital infection and prevention and control. Now, we know in hospitals that there are opportunistic moments where healthcare workers can acquire an infection when they do a procedure that creates aerosols. We also know that they are very cognizant of the requirement of ventilation. However, that's been overshadowed uh, recently with new built environments, including good airflow change. But the older style hospitals have been left behind until now. There's also what's called negative air pressure rooms that prevent fine aerosols going into the corridors and preventing people in the corridors from getting a face full of aerosols. And they not only have a negative air pressure... So they stop things from going out into the corridors, but the air is also forced through a HEPA filter, which then uh, filters out any small particles. So that if air does escape, it is uh, pretty clean. However, it doesn't mean that healthcare workers can work in that ward without a mask or eye protection if they're looking after people with TB, um, multiple-resistant TB, or, or SARS, or um, any other disease that they've deemed potentially transmitted by aerosols. But we're learning more and more that, in fact, infectious diseases uh, from the lungs aren't actually just pushed out by one size particle. And my own PhD student, she's now got a doctorate, uh, Dr. Jan Grolton, uh, and I uh, looked at this with Professor Bill Rawlinson and Yuvan Toei. And uh, we got together. I was asked by the chief medical officer at the time, getting ready for uh, in pandemic influenza, to look at the safety of guidelines for healthcare workers for pandemic influenza. And one of the issues was that diseases were identified as either droplet or airborne spread based on a cut point of the size of the particle. And Jan went to a lot of trouble uh, looking at the literature for me and identified that some of the methodology was incredibly flawed. Even nowadays, with electron microscopy and all sorts of methods of identifying the size, it's very hard to keep a particle still to then size it. So even if you look at the old-sized particles of anything greater than 5 microns, Is a droplet anything smaller? Is an aerosol or um, airborne spread? And we decided, not we, but the previous uh, scientific group decided that flu was airborne and others were not, like SARS in 2003. But that wasn't the case because Jan got a lot of patients with influenza A and B and other uh, respiratory viruses. And got the patients to speak through an Anderson sampler. It was a sampler that push that you, as you're speaking, or coughing, or you know, um, or just breathing, it sizes the particles through membranes. And we identified that in fact influenza is not just airborne spread; it's droplet as well. And when I was on WHO panel, looking at this vexing decision about what is airborne, what is a droplet spread. I reminded them of our paper, but there was also other authors had also identified this, but the scientific community chose not to be woke by this in two thousand, from 2009 to say about 2015. And they just kind of ignored it. And then a scientist an engineering a scientist um i think she was a physical engineer from Queensland was getting very anxious that we as a scientific infection control group weren't taking airborne spread seriously but we were we just weren't communicating it properly for infection prevention and control people in the hospitals who sit on these scientific committees to advise the chief medical officers in Australia. So in the hospitals, they know about these things, but in the community, we hadn't really focused on educating the community. So we set about rewriting the guidelines and the guidelines came out on the 9th of July and very clearly state that there is droplet and contact, or touch. uh, uh, a lovely professor in Hong Kong, uh, Professor Lai, calls it touch transmission. You won't get it unless you touch a high-touch area that's been contaminated, so touch contamination or droplet. But there's also airborne spread, and if you add poor ventilation, then you're going to catch it by these tiny little particles that hang in the air for much longer than the droplets do. And there's been outbreaks on buses and a famous one in a restaurant uh, because of poor ventilation. And then we set out to remind hospital infection control experts about the need for ventilation in hospitals. And... Then they became mindful that the older style hospitals hadn't been keeping up with this ventilation, and that I kept talking to the public about the importance of ventilation in restaurants and shopping malls. And I think the new updated guidelines has helped to bring to the forefront the importance of ventilation for the public, because it's nothing. It's not just all about hospitals. It's about the public, because that's where most COVID's being caught, not in hospitals. And I think now uh, infection prevention and control experts are now woke to the importance of ventilation in public, in offices, in buses and trains.
0: That's really great to hear. I did want to also apply that ventilation question to places that we are seeing opening up more, like obviously schools have returned you know, much sooner than offices, but we are seeing that Victoria, for example, is allowing 50% of workers to go into their office and it started up at as 25%. So in even those environments where you see a large number of people congregating in open air office spaces, Um, perhaps they do have air conditioning, but how do you ensure that places like a classroom or an office where there are people working beside each other, how do you ensure that those type of spaces are adequately ventilated?
1: Mm. Uh, You get your air conditioning uh, engineer out. And they will then be able to test and tell you the airflow change. So there's uh, two measures, the old fashioned air change per hour, ACH, or the litre per second per person. And they kind of equate to each other, but they're on slightly different scales. And so you get your engineer to come out and look at that and also ask him or her to ensure that the airflow change is 100% fresh air from outside because sometimes air conditioning doesn't source its air from outside. It just basically recirculates. And that's sometimes what happens in some aged care facilities because it's expensive to source fully 100% clean air change. But that's what should be happening during COVID. So get your engineer to come out.
0: Thank you. That's uh, excellent advice. I'm sure lots of people will find that very helpful. There are a couple of things I really would love to discuss before we have to finish off, one of them is around long COVID, um, which is the term, the colloquial term people are using for symptoms that people continue to have after the virus has cleared their system and they're no longer shedding active virus. And these are symptoms that are very wide ranging and can be, you know, things like a brain fog, insomnia, fatigue. They can also be breathlessness, being very short of breath. There are so many different types of symptoms that it sounds that people are experiencing, including neurological symptoms. And there have been early studies to come out to suggest that SARS-CoV-2 that becomes the disease COVID-19 can also damage and affect a number of organs and systems within the body. So there is a concern It doesn't seem to be a very widespread concern among everyone, but certainly I know a lot of uh, people have raised this as being a concern, the potential medium to long-term effects that some people who become infected with COVID-19 may continue to experience. And given that this is a novel virus, a novel coronavirus, there certainly is a concern among some parts about the unknown nature of the virus and the unknown nature of these long-term effects. So um, I would love to understand from your perspective in terms of this issue, because we are managing it a lot by saying, well, you know, we obviously want to prevent deaths, but clearly preventing transmission also means we're preventing another group of people from potentially becoming chronically ill. So I wonder, when you're thinking about these types of considerations um, around not just the immediate effects of a virus, but the long-term effects, what are some of the things that we're beginning to understand about the coronavirus in this sense, and what type of things would you be potentially concerned by as an epidemiologist?
1: So thank you for bringing up long hauler or long COVID. I think it's a great term. It tells you everything in two words. And it's something that uh, when I was first called to WHO in Geneva for the meeting about the roadmap to what we don't know and let's develop a roadmap, it wasn't mentioned. So we talked about Therapies, vaccines. I wasn't on those two groups, but we were, um, as epidemiologists or other experts in other areas, we were informed about all of these important issues. And there hadn't been enough time passed for people to realise that people weren't getting well in a couple of weeks and in fact we had another meeting but this time not in person um, electronically in July in the first week of July and again those that were presenting the clinical epidemiology did not present us with long COVID and it really only came to pass a little after that with an English physician uh, who was a a bike rider, very fit. I can't remember how old he was, probably, let's say, in his 30s or early 40s, and very fit man. And he didn't understand why uh, he wasn't feeling very well and thought he'd uh, look for a support group. And uh, he put out, you know, on these um, uh, electronic Facebooks and, and other areas about how he wasn't, getting well. And he was one of the patients that hadn't been hospitalized. And I don't like the term mild COVID because I think it really disrespects the effects um, that people feel when they're kept at home with COVID. So I prefer the term non-hospitalized COVID uh, to respect the different degrees of impact that it has had on people not hospitalized. So those that go to hospital. Are, are followed up quite carefully. And there was this impression that, of course, people with severe COVID or moderate COVID that had either gone to ICU that weren't mechanically ventilated or those that were, were that was expected, that they would have some brain fog or some long-term manifestations because that's commonplace, particularly for people who have been ventilated, mechanically ventilated. And those that were not hospitalised were not surveilled for their long-term follow-up. They were surveyed for um, whether or not they were infectious, and they they didn't have the classic symptoms, and they didn't have a positive test, so therefore they were deemed uh, recovered. But in fact, uh, we now have seen that there are several studies out that have found Over a third of um, people have not improved after two weeks. And over a quarter of those between 18 and 34 uh, haven't um, uh, recovered, and over a third between 35 and 49 haven't, and so forth. And so about one in five individuals have, uh, without a chronic medical condition, so no baseline ill health have not recovered by day 16. So this is now becoming a concern because 18 to even, you know, 39-year-olds are going to be our future leaders. They're going to be future parents and future highly productive people in whatever life style they choose and you do not want them to go into this with brain fog which you've mentioned cardiovascular illness you've mentioned and one reason that they haven't been picked up is because a classic chest x-ray hasn't been picking up some of the ongoing myocardial inflammation and they've needed an MRI test to actually pick it up. So we're now learning more about these um, uh, problems and thickening of uh, lung tissue, causing dysfunction, and we don't know how long this will go for. There's also the classic depression, and that's commonplace after a serious illness. And this isn't the first time that this long hauler effect has been experienced, and I've received emails from people saying that they had a serious viral infection and that they felt depressed or that they felt that they weren't at their level of functioning again. So we are now becoming less dismissive of people's uh, reporting that they aren't bouncing back. And I think that there should be more studies done by GPs to follow up their patients to see how long it does take and what can help and monoclonal antibody therapy well it was actually polyclonal therapy that um donald trump had may actually help but we um, it's expensive to produce takes a long time and it's only been tested in a small group of people and hasn't been tested in those that haven't gone um, into hospital. So there are many things we don't know about actually what might help uh, non-hospitalised COVID patients uh, when they recover to actually get back to normal functioning there was one paper that suggested also that there may be a genetic predisposition, but it was one paper only. And when you get tested for COVID, you don't get tested for this genetic predisposition for long hauler. Um, if you, if it was cheap enough and you could do it, and it was genetic, then maybe then you could go on to something like monoclonal antibodies if it turns out to be a good thing, or some other. Uh, therapeutic uh, such as um, dexamethasone, a small dose. We don't have many off what we call off-label use for therapeutics for COVID, whether it be severe, moderate or mild or non-hospitalised. We we just don't have enough at the moment, sadly. So the best advice is don't get COVID Mm. if you're young so that you don't get long hauler.
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm so grateful to your input on that because it's something that I don't think we're having a conversation about in any huge amount of depth publicly and certainly in the media in Australia but I know there are conversations going on in other parts so it's great to shine a light on it and of course to remember that there is a role for masks still even if they're not mandatory that we should think about wearing them and certainly those in vulnerable groups like those who are immunocompromised or have comorbidities I would say it would make sense to to wear masks. So I wonder whether that's something that uh, we can use our own discretion for in terms of the level of precautions we might take in the future. Um, But yeah, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I do want to say a great thank you to you, Mary Louise, for your time today. And hopefully we can check in and catch up on all the other topics we haven't got to touch on today, but we've gone through so much today that I am so grateful to you. Anytime, stay well. You too. I've been chatting with Professor Mary-Louise McLaws and we were just talking about COVID-19 and all the related issues. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.